0: all right good they don't have a clock in this room I see so I got my clock there we're good um I let's see I'm going to pass this thing around so we're going to be talking today about um various approaches to singing the psalms from the reformation uh up through the 19th century and uh I thought this might be interesting this is a a page Not exactly sure how old, but it's pre-1650, so it's pretty old. um, From what's called the old version of the Psalter, Um, Sternhold and Hopkins. We'll talk about that. But um, I I think it's been dropped once. It's just a cheap Staples frame or whatever. But so just be careful. That's why it's got duct tape on it. And and I'll pass out some other things as as we go through this as well. Um, So um, I don't I don't know if you know this or not, but You know, at the time of the Reformation, in general, congregations hadn't been singing in worship for about a thousand years. A lot of people don't know that, but um, the Council of, uh, oh, which was, I think it was, shoot, I just forgot, Uh, Laodicea, that's what it is. The Council of Laodicea um, banned congregational singing. We're not quite sure how long Uh, It took for that to be fully enforced. That was part of the kind of eastern wing of the church. But it took, uh, it wasn't that long before really um, singing in church was restricted really to trained choirs of priests. Um, And that's really unfortunate. Uh, John Huss is the guy who tried to introduce congregational singing uh, in the early 1400s. Uh, The Catholic Church didn't take kindly to that. Uh, They invited him to come to a thing called the Council of Constance. They promised him safe passage, if he would just come and speak to them about some of his innovations, like giving the bread and the wine to lay people and introducing congregational singing, horrors of horrors, Um, and then when he got there, the church said, we don't actually have to keep our promise to heretics, and they burned him at the stake. They reiterated the ban on congregational singing, uh, saying this, that if laymen are forbidden from preaching, how much more are they forbidden from singing? So when people like Calvin and Luther begin their work, you need to understand one of the things that they inherit in both cases, both in in Geneva and in in, um, Wittenberg are, well, certainly for Luther, you have a trained priestly choir He wants to introduce congregational singing. He thinks that's important, but he also doesn't want to just throw those guys out on their ear with no jobs. By the time Calvin gets to Geneva, they're not singing at all, okay? And it actually becomes very difficult for him to get the city fathers to even let them introduce congregational singing. We'll talk about that. But in general, Luther and Calvin take a slightly different approach to the Reformation of worship. And it has to do with what they thought the chief problem uh, was with medieval Catholic worship. Luther felt that um, the biggest problem was that people thought they were earning righteousness by engaging in worship. So he was fine to keep a lot of the liturgy and, you know, even his early worship You know, structure looked much like the mass, but he included words to clarify what was going on and to make sure you didn't think that you were earning any kind of righteousness, right? So Luther thought the chief problem was this idea of righteousness. Calvin thought the problem was deeper than that. He thought the problem was idolatry. And what he meant by that was innovations that the church had introduced which didn't have a scriptural basis. So Calvin thought, we basically need to strip things out unless there is a positive command for it in Scripture. Now that becomes uh, known as the regulative principle, and there are actually some different views. Even the Westminster Confession of Faith, which we adhere to here as a PCA church, their view of the regulative principle is different and more strict than Calvin's was. Um which actually is important but a topic for another day. Um, but that, that's important for you to understand. So Luther does sing Psalms. I don't know how many of you know this, but a mighty fortress, for instance, is a version of Psalm 46. And it's it's kind of interesting because um, when I teach hymnology, I like to point out, you know, when you're doing translation from one language to another, you're always involved in interpretation. Translating poetry is almost like you're trying to translate the images into the target language. Rarely are you keeping the same poetic meter, okay? Uh, And what you see with Luther, you know, Satan is not named in Psalm 46, right? So the question is like, where does he get, you know, where does he get the freedom to actually, you know, make the Psalm 46 about the opposition that the Reformation is facing, right? Um, now, there are actually a number of translations of Luther's mighty fortress. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, that word bulwark is a particularly unfortunate English translation <laughs> because it doesn't fit the Hebrew and it doesn't fit the word that, that, he, that Luther uses in German, but it's the one that we tend to sing uh, in America. But a bulwark is like a levee. It's like an earthen fortress, right? Uh, But the Hebrew word, an ever-present help in trouble, is is how most of our English translations render it, is basically like a fortress that's on the move, that goes with us. And the German word that that Luther used is the same, all right? So I don't want you to get the idea that Luther doesn't uh, encourage psalm singing. He does, and many of his hymns are actually Psalms, but you don't know that because we know them by other names. But Calvin really is a a more thorough returning to singing Psalms. Now, he is not fully just Psalms, but he basically is concerned about the power of music, and he seems actually to get more concerned about the power of music and the way it can be used for bad uh, ends the longer that he lives right early in his career he seems a little more open to music of various sorts by the end of his career he basically thinks it's probably best just to sing only psalms all the time Um, though at first he's like psalms in church along with some other songs Uh, but there's other good music you can sing around the table or with your friends or whatnot but eventually he gets even a little concerned about about that so um, Calvin basically um, introduces psalm singing And what's interesting is how that comes about because he actually, uh, at one point Calvin and Farrell, they're the two reformers in Geneva, I don't know if you know this or not, but they got exiled at some point. They were trying to introduce some various reforms And the city fathers, who were kind of the movers and the shakers, didn't always like the innovations and the preaching against idolatry and and wealth and things like that. And so eventually they get kicked out and they're exiled um, to a place uh, called Strasbourg. Now, Calvin has already tried to convince the city fathers to introduce congregational singing which he means mostly psalm singing as a matter of fact at one point he says look our prayers are so cold and lifeless like we've got to try something you know why don't we try singing but at this point it's theoretical because he's really never heard people singing praise to god in their own language and it's kind of hard to 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 understand but that's the situation when he gets exiled to Strasbourg, there's a guy there named martin bootzer who is already singing in church. So what was theoretical to Calvin then becomes something he's actually now experienced and he becomes even more convinced. And so later when the the city fathers in Geneva write to Calvin and Farrell and say, please come back, we made a mistake. They issue four non-negotiable conditions upon which they will return. And one of those is singing. Now actually the first version of the Genevan Psalter is what it's known as uh, was actually published while Calvin was still in exile in Strasbourg before he even gets back to Geneva but what you need to understand is the Genevan Psalter continues to develop. Um, Calvin wants to find the best poets, the best composer. He gets Louis Bourgeois, who is the composer in residence basically for the King of France, gets him to come to Geneva. He really goes after like the top people, okay, to do this work. And the Genevan Psalter of 1562 is the largest publishing project in the history of the world up to that time. It's hard to overestimate how fully singing Genevan psalms had entered into the warp and woof of everyday life of the people in Geneva. Um, My friend John Whitfleet has has written about the 1562 Psalter. He says it was the most gigantic enterprise ever undertaking and publishing until then. In the first two years alone, over 27,000 copies of the 1562 Psalter were issued. Within just a few years, the number of copies may well have reached 100,000 in 30 editions, in addition to the thousands of copies printed in translations in nine languages. Right? It's just a remarkable thing. And it was one of the things that Calvin worked on his whole life. Uh, one, one of the, the mantras, I guess, I try to um, kind of speak often when I can is how many of our preaching heroes in the Reformed tradition spent significant time and effort curating the songs their people sang. And we, we don't often know that. We don't know that people like George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, Archibald Alexander, J.C. Ryle, all these folks put together hymn books, and it was a very important thing to them. They didn't just preach. I think sometimes, I love Banner Truth, right? But I think sometimes you read kind of reformed history from that perspective and you would think that preaching is the only thing that God has used. Um, it's not actually true it's um, the singing has been a a really big deal now what's interesting let me just say a couple things about about the music because the 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 music of the genevan psalm tunes um, are are interesting they're 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 not strictly like you know beer songs or drinking songs I know many people have heard that right Um, even Luther didn't put his hymns to drinking songs that's a, that's a misunderstanding. He set his hymns to what are called bar tunes, but that's a German word that refers to AAB musical form. It has nothing to do with drinking. <laughs> and, um, f- bo- no, and at the time, in the 16th century, we didn't yet have bar lines. Now, bar lines are why when you hear a tune, you instantly think, are there three beats per measure or four beats per measure? And you just kind of automatically divide it up like that. It's not just the pulse, but it's one, two, three. I mean, can you imagine dancing if you couldn't count one, two, three, or one, two, three, four, right, but they didn't have that in the 16th century. And so the tunes, Luther's tunes and Calvin's tunes are very strange to us. They come across as very syncopated and people aren't even exactly sure how they would have sounded in their original context. We do know that um, the, the Queen of England at one point didn't like the genevan psalm tunes because she thought they were too lively now th- what well, i'm talking about like the doxology because that's that's one of the tunes now it comes over we call it old 100th it wasn't set to psalm 100 in the genevan psalter it gets set to that in an english psalter and that's why it's called Old One Hundredth. but the tune is actually goes back to the genevan psalms and it was much more lively, so much so that the queen, who at that point preferred chanting the psalms, because that's what they did in the Anglican church, she called these Genevan tunes, Genevan jigs. <laughs> so if you can imagine wanting to dance a jig to the doxology, in the 19th century, in the 19th century there was a movement in church music to, to argue that syncopation was bad and we should basically have every note the same length, that that was more scientifically precise and beautiful and so a lot of tunes got deliberately straightened out and slowed down and that's why you sing the doxology the way you sing it not the way it would have been sung in calvin's day Um, but I, i will say this what's interesting calvin did not allow for singing in harmony he also didn't believe that you should have choirs so I, I know we have a church choir, and I know that there's been controversy over the years about the church choir. I'll just say, for Calvin, he thought the congregation was the choir. And what he did, because the Genevan tunes were not easy, um, and he wanted to have a, a, a unique tune for all 150 psalms, okay? Uh, so what he did is, during the day school, they taught the tunes to the children, and then they spread the children out throughout the congregation, so that their parents could try to follow along right yeah and um but Calvin the other interesting thing is Calvin didn't believe that in church you should sing in harmony he thought you should only sing unison in church because otherwise that wasn't an expression of Christian unity sometimes theologians make odd judgments about music okay um and but the funny thing is he published harmonized versions of the Geneva psalm tunes from the very beginning but only for use at home. So these days, like if you go to Calvin College's website, you can hear you know, recordings of Genevan psalm tunes, but they tend to be done with a, chor- with a choir and in harmony. But that's not how they actually sang them in Calvin's Geneva, okay? So that's, that's Calvin. Um, I will say this too, people get very attached to tunes. And at one point, Louis Bourgeois, he's the guy who came up with these tunes, Um, changed one of his own tunes and he got thrown in jail for it (laughs) now Calvin to his credit went and got him out of jail he thought that was a little over the top but I think you're gonna see this theme um, all through what we talk about today people tend to be really intense about church music I know preachers get criticism about sermons sometimes but it's usually filtered worship directors if you saw the kinds of things that they receive, anyway, all right, that's, that's one of my, I always encourage, you know, worship leaders I know that um, don't publish your, your cell phone number, your private email. <laughs> Best thing, this is, you know, for the elders, set up an email address that goes to a couple elders first for them to review, because some of the things that come to worship leaders probably need to be dealt with by the elders before the poor worship leader has to read about them. That's just my little two cents on that. Um, All right, so what happened? So Calvin is basically singing psalms, though not just all psalms. And I know some of you, in the Reformed tradition, we have this debate about exclusive psalmody, whether we're allowed to sing anything besides the psalms. That argument actually, Calvin is not as strict about that. As a matter of fact, from the very beginning, the Genevan Psalter includes more than just psalms. And and it doesn't even just include songs in scripture, like the Song of Mary or the Song of Miriam. It does include those, but it also includes a poetic version of the Ten Commandments. And nobody ever argued that the Ten Commandments were sung, okay? Though um, there there are ways that you can chant the entire Hebrew Old Testament, and that was often done, okay? So um, the, the Scots in the 19th century press this psalm only view in ways that go beyond what actually was done in the 16th and 17th century but that's an intramural debate if you care about it i, I can direct you to some resources on that debate but what happens now let's go over to england because we're english speakers here and it might be interesting to, to kind of look at some of how that developed one of the things that you need to understand is there was always sort of okay so there the, the people love singing the psalms It's a new thing, they've not been able to do it, but eventually people become a little dissatisfied with being restricted to the Psalms. Now in the early days of the Reformation in England, the Lutheran influence, which includes Psalms and hymns, hymns of human composure as they're called, that the Lutheran influence was stronger early on in the English Reformation. There's a guy named Miles Coverdale, you might know him as a guy who introduced the translation of the Bible. He put together a little book called Ghostly Songs, uh, meaning Holy Ghost Songs, um, and they're basically translations of Lutheran hymns. Um, there's only really one or two copies in existence because King Henry VIII banned that book. It got put on the, the list of banned books, uh, and so um, it didn't really have any real influence. What ends up happening is that calvin's influence comes over to uh, the english and scottish churches and part of that is because during the the troubles and the reformation and the persecution a lot of english and scottish exiles end up over in geneva people like john knox and others they kind of pick up on psalm singing and then when they go back to england you know they bring that psalm singing tradition with them Um, thomas cramner is the guy who puts together the first book of common prayer It's interesting because there is a draft version of that that includes hymns. But we don't know why, when he published it, he took out the hymns and decided to go only with chanting psalms. But that has a huge influence on the English church. And they basically are singing um, psalms, but not just psalms, but psalms with a focus on strict adherence to the Hebrew text. And so one of the debates becomes Like, can we sing the Psalms in a way that speaks about their Christological understanding? Do you know what I'm talking about? In other words, like, is Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the last verse, it is finished. Um, In the most English translation, Psalm 22 says, it is done, um, or he has done it but it's the Hebrew, uh, the third person singular, it's either, you know, he or it, right? So, Jesus, when he says, it is finished, is quoting the last verse of Psalm 22. And yet, um, for people like Calvin and the English and the Scots, they don't think it's appropriate to Christianize the Psalms when you sing them. But this ends up becoming kind of an odd thing, because the preachers are preaching... The psalms in a way to say how this is fulfilled in Jesus, but they're not allowed to sing that way. It even develops into this. I brought this kind of odd thing. This is the Psalms of David and Meter. Um, it's the Scottish version, but you'll notice it has a little introduction. It says, with notes by John Brown. The introduction basically is, here's how to think about this psalm as being a Christian psalm while you sing it and can't sing it to Jesus. So you're supposed to, in your head, think about it as singing to Jesus, but you're not allowed to sing it to Jesus. You have to stick to the Hebrew text. You might be interested in looking at that. So you end up with this kind of odd thing, but you already have sort of a movement towards hymns and even adapting the Psalms to poetic meter because you're already having to deal with, well, the Hebrew is not in poetic meter. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme and it doesn't contain like consistent meter okay so when you translate it into English what are you going to do are you just going to render it almost literally and you can see if you look I think it's the third page I put on here for instance the uh, Psalm 1 from the Geneva Bible the Geneva Bible is a Bible that both John Knox and John Calvin personally worked on it's the first uh, Bible to include not just chapters but verse markings for what it's worth um and it rather than the king james was really the bible of the puritans and the bible that the westminster assembly preferred as well uh, of course um you know all that to aside so you can read i think it's worth looking for instance at psalm one from the geneva bible we'll just look at a couple verses it says blessed is the man that doth not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of the scornful but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Okay? So that's 1599, Geneva Bible. The, the old version, this Sternhold and Hopkins that I passed around a page from, um, trying to be pretty literal, but yet still stick it into meter, has it this way The man is blessed that hath not lent to wicked men his ear, nor led his life as sinners do, nor sat in scorner's chair. But in the law of God, the Lord doth set his whole delight, and in the same doth exercise himself both day and night. That's not really the way we use the word exercise uh, today, but that's how they used it. So that's the Old Version. The Old Version is published in part in 1547 in England, and the full version appears in 1562, which is the same year that that full version of the Geneva Psalter Happen. so these these things are going on parallel movements right? Um, it's a huge success. It's reprinted over 200 times over the next hundred years. It appears in almost all the versions of the Geneva Bible. If you bought a Geneva Bible, though, in these days you didn't go buy a book that was already bound. I don't know if you know this. In these days you would go to a bookseller, you would buy the pages, and then you would take the pages to your binder, and you would have them bind it the way you wanted. Okay? And usually most of the Genevan Bibles we have also include this uh, Sternhold and Hopkins old version of the Psalms, as do versions of the Book of Common Prayer. So they, they were all getting bound up there together. The poetry's not great, but the people really grow to love their Psalms and become pretty committed to these. In 1696, so this is, again, 130 years later. The, the the cry for better poetry has kind of reached the point where two guys, um, Tate and Brady, decide to introduce a new version. And even that, the new version, you know, you can hear a little like, why do we need a new version? You know, it's like the people say, you know, the King James is good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe you've been around people like that. Um, a lot of people are pretty upset. Nicholas... Uh, Tate actually tells a story about this. Once he was basically um, spending time with a a family friend and during family prayers, he's there, um, and they're using his new version of the Psalms in their family worship. He noticed that one of the maids refused to sing along. So he asked her why, and here's what she says. If you must know the plain truth, sir, as long as you sung Jesus Christ's Psalms, I sung along with ye. But now that you sing psalms of your own invention, you may sing by yourselves. (laughs) Eventually, though, the the new version does win the day. Um, uh, Though, actually, out in the country, well into the 19th century, they're still singing the old version. Now, the the other concern and the other problem is how they're singing the psalms. They're doing what's called lining out. Do you know what, what lining out is? So, lining out is what they did because people didn't read music, but even if they did, they didn't have books with the music in them. Very expensive to develop typeset for music, right? Actually, hymnals don't really have music in them until after the Civil War. For the most part, hymnals before the Civil War are just texts, and you would know a handful of tunes in your congregation. You could sing almost your entire hymn book with a handful of tunes. Okay, there are some cases where they published a separate tune book that maybe the song leader would have so that he could learn a few tunes. But people didn't have hymnals where they were reading music and singing. Um, now what what they're doing here, lining out is one of the things that they developed to try to help people sing. And what they do is the leader will sing a line or half a line and then the people sing it back. but it's a pretty dreadful experience. Um, We have lots of testimonies about how awful, like, you know, the the person, you might have like one guy, he kind of knows this tune, but as he starts singing it, maybe he kind of gets lost and it evolves into a different tune because the people don't really know it very well either. Um, It just gets slower and slower and slower. Not only that, but the problem with both the old version and the new version is that sometimes the lines when you cut them off in the middle say something heretical. (laughs) In other words until you finish the thought you're like hanging there you know God hath no power God hath no power to do you know whatever but you like in the middle like for a while you've got this heresy hanging out there so that's that's another problem. Uh, Interesting we're going to talk about in a minute Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts because he knows that people are so love to do this lining out, he, when he does his version of the Psalms, he does them in a way that if you cut off each line halfway, it will always work, and it'll never be um, heretical. So he expects that people do that. Now, you guys talked last week, right, about um, the African-American church, right? And this uh, lining out actually is probably um, something that gets taken up in the black church, uh, in a lot of older historic churches, you will find that they still sing what are called a Dr. Watts. Um, And there's some great examples of those recordings. They do the lining out like this, but they do it for hymns and they don't, it's, it's fascinating, like the leader will sing, but the response is not exactly just a copy. It's almost like an answer that has developed in just a really remarkable way. If you didn't grow up singing, it would be hard for you to to sit in church and join in. It's this kind of fascinating, undulating kind of sound. So the lining out is something that ends up that call and response. It probably most likely resonates with a West African practice that the slaves would have understood. And then they hear the Puritans lining out their Psalms and they kind of stick the two of them together and out you get the call and response, which is a pretty central aspect of, of black church music, right? So that's a little extra, no extra charge there. All right, so then you get the Scots. The Scots do their Psalter. And I thought I would pass this because you might find this interesting. The Scots Psalter, sometimes you can find what are called split pages. Now, the reason they do this is you can sing different tunes to different texts. You couldn't have done that with the Genevan Psalm. Because the Geneva, Calvin's goal was to get a unique tune for each of the 150 psalms. And then really, he, it seems that he felt like once we get a good tune for all 150, then we're done. Then all we got to do is teach them to the people and they can sing every psalm and get the scripture in their heart and that's good. But the English and the Scottish, they actually go with meters that actually are more like folk tune meters, which is why you can sing so many hymns to like the theme from Gilligan's Island or House of the Rising Sun, or, or, you know, all these sorts of things, right? Because the popular ballad meter um, is also what they end up using for a lot of these psalm tunes, right? So that's why you can mix and match tunes in that Scottish psalter, all right? Um, now, let's talk about Isaac Watts, the revolution of Isaac Watts. Um, so, you know, Watts, is, is, uh, he's a pretty precocious child. He begins Latin at 4, Greek at 8, French at 10, and Hebrew by age 13. Um, He seems to have been converted around age 14, um, the year 1688 that religious tolerance actually comes to non-Anglicans. Yet, there's still a lot of barriers if you're not an Anglican. If you're what's called a non-conformist, you're not conforming to using the Book of Common Prayer and worship, there are a lot of challenges. For instance, He has a doctor who offers to pay his way to Cambridge or Oxford. The problem is you can't go to Cambridge and Oxford unless you convert to Anglicanism. And so he refuses that because he won't convert to Anglicanism. But one fateful day after church and singing, um, probably the old version, but could have been the new version, Isaac complained about the awful singing to his father. He says this, such words are entirely wanting in the dignity and beauty that should characterize every part of a Christian service. His father replied, try then whether you can do something better. So that afternoon, he writes his first hymn, and here's what he writes. Behold the glories of the Lamb amidst his father's throne. Prepare new honors for his name and songs before unknown. Now, it's obvious that he's been thinking about this because he's choosing as his text a passage from Revelation about singing a new song and singing a song to the Lamb. Later, he's going to argue that we shouldn't be restricted to just psalms because the book of Revelation includes the saints are singing a song to the Lamb, and there's no psalm that is a song to the Lamb. Therefore, Revelation must be including a psalm of human or a hymn of human composure, right? So he's already kind of laying down the gauntlet, even in this first one, but you can just notice the poetic skill. It's night and day different, and and I'll, I'll show you that here in just a second, but just to know this, over the next few years, Isaac Watts writes most of the hymns that we know and love By him, hymns like, Alas, and did my Savior bleed when I survey the wondrous cross, laden with guilt, full of fears, I boast no more. Some of the songs that you think of as hymns, though, by Isaac Watts are actually psalms. So Joy to the World, for instance, is not a hymn. It's based on a psalm, okay? Um, And O God, our help, for him, it's our God, our help, is how he originally wrote it, is not a hymn, it's a psalm. It's a version of Psalm 90, Okay? So, what Watts is fully convinced that we should Christianize the psalms and singing them, and we'll talk about that in a second, but he doesn't actually introduce his psalms first to kind of pave the way to introduce hymns. He believes that we should be able to sing hymns of human composure, not be limited just to psalms, but he actually introduces his hymns first. He doesn't try to sort of get, like, the, his versions of psalms kind of as a a foot inside the door and then open it up no he just goes right from the beginning with his hymns and includes a 10-page essay on psalmody but he actually means by that singing and makes some very powerful arguments about why we should be able to sing hymns and not just psalms um, he, he a couple of his arguments you might find interesting um one is that he he um uses psalm or acts 4 and and this is a a very important argument john calvin remember he doesn't think you can do anything in worship unless you can find a positive command for it in scripture and actually calvin doesn't think that there's a positive command to sing i think he's wrong i think it's kind of odd but he says the reason that we can sing is because it's part of prayer and prayer is commanded So if prayer is commanded, then we can sing because it's a kind of prayer. That's Calvin's argument. Watts, knowing that argument, says, okay, Calvin and all you who follow him and think that we can only sing psalms literal to the text and not Christianize them, look at Acts 4. Because in Acts 4, the apostles use Psalm 2 and applies it to Jesus and his suffering and to Herod and Pilate so they, in their prayer, Christianized Psalm 2, and that's in Acts 4. So if, if the reason that we can sing is because it's warranted only because it's part of prayer, why don't you actually look at how the apostles prayed using the Psalms? They Christianized them, right? It's a powerful argument. Um, and he, of course, he also argues that you can't sing the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb unless you're singing new hymns as well. All right, so 1707, he introduces his, his hymns. A lot of people don't like them. They're called Watts Whims by people that aren't very fond of them. But one of the first people to latch on to them and to, to encourage people to sing them is Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is a big fan because he feels that they really will help people get stirred up and will really help promote the revival that he longs for. So he's a, he's a big fan of Watts. All right, In 1712, uh, Watts is working on his versions of the Psalms. He's about halfway through the project when his health breaks down. Uh, he recovers a bit in 1714. He's invited to stay at a friend's country mansion, think like a Downton Abbey kind of place, and he ends up staying there for 38 years as a house guest. He's a pastor at the time, but he can't preach very often, but he does work on his... Psalms, and he publishes that in 1718. And the, the name of his Psalter is important. He says, These are the Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. And he writes to his friend Cotton Mather over here in the States about what he's trying to do. And he basically says, My goal is to make David sing like a Christian. Here's how he says it. Uh, it's not a translation of David that I pretend, or that I intend, we would say, but an imitation of him. So nearly in Christian hymns that the Jewish psalmist may plainly appear and yet leave Judaism behind. Now, this is interesting. He actually only does versions of 138 of the 150 psalms because he feels that there are some psalms that are too Jewish and you can't get Christian joy into them. That, that's, his, that's his language, okay? Okay. So, for instance, did you all talk yet about Psalm 88? Yeah, which ends, darkness is my closest friend. Uh, As you might expect, that's one of the ones that Isaac Watts leaves out. He doesn't believe that there's a Christian way to sing that one. Um, What's interesting is that um, later, and we're going to talk here in in a little bit about a lady named Ann Steele, she does do um, some of these uh, versions of psalms, and she does a version of psalm, 88 all right so watts really look at look here briefly at watts and then i'll tell you about four other hymn writers that write psalms um oh i was going to tell you about the Bay psalm book if you're if you're curious you can look at this this is if if i had a real Bay psalm book it's maybe two million dollars right there's very few of them but the Bay psalm book is the ultimate example of strict adherence to the hebrew text you have to justify if you're going to leave out one syllable um, they, and, and thus it's the worst poetry. It's, it's awful, and I included a version there. But look at, you know, you've read some of those, like Psalm 1, Psalm, Psalm 1 from Tate and Brady, and much better, so the base Psalm book, O blessed man, that in the advice of wicked doth not walk, nor stand in sinner's way, nor sit in chair of scornful folk. Um, not very good, but turn, it, turn that page over and look at Psalm 1 by Isaac Watts. It's like a whole new world to quote that song. The man is ever blessed who shuns the sinner's ways. Among their counsels never stands nor takes the scorner's place, but makes the law of God his study and delight amidst the labors of the day and watches of the night. Uh, Isaac Watts is a great poet. As a matter of fact, he publishes a book of poems called the Horae Lyricae* to show off how good a poet he is, and then he writes about how he deliberately toned down his poetical skill in writing songs for people to sing all right so now here's the last point i want to make the revolution of watts is huge okay and and really from then on nobody really tries to publish a book that is a that is a competes with isaac watts right very quickly you have books that are published that are isaac watts hymns and his psalms And then what other people do is they basically notice, hey, he didn't actually do all the psalms, so I can publish a book that finishes the job and add a few other hymns. And so you have all of these books that are Watts and. It's like the hymns and psalms of Isaac Watts and psalms that he didn't do and a few hymns of the author's own composition. And that basically is the only way you can publish a hymn book for about the next 50, 60 years, right? But Isaac Watts, Uh, is not the end of people trying to find out ways to sing the psalms. And I wanted to make this point that there are actually quite a few hymn writers that continue to do versions of the psalms. And I think one of the cool projects would be one day for somebody to compose a psalter that's just made from the hymn versions of various psalms. And so I've got a couple people I want to introduce you to. One is Ann Steele. She's the most uh, sung Baptist hymn writer up until Fanny Crosby, she's known for hymns like "Dear Refuge and My Weary Soul," but she also did 30 hymns. And like I said, she does a version of Psalm 88, and I gave it to you. We won't have time to read it, but it's fabulous. Um, and she, um, you know, her hymns interestingly cross denominational lines quicker than Watts or Wesley. She writes laments where neither one of them will do that. And because I think they echo the psalms and the full breadth of emotional range that English speakers were used to singing in the psalms, they really latch on to hers. Interestingly, she doesn't Christianize the psalms like Isaac Watts. Then there's Charles Wesley. You know Charles Wesley, right? 6,000 hymns he wrote, but he also wrote a number of psalms along the way. And if you want to see like this entire back section of this book here, are all psalms. Like, he did tons of versions of almost every psalm. Um, And a lot of them are are really, really good. You can get that book, by the way, on Amazon, print on demand if you're interested. And then there's James Montgomery. James Montgomery was a Scottish Moravian. You probably, this time of year, may sing his most famous hymn, Angels from the Realms of Glory. Um, One thing I love about Uh, James Montgomery. He's a Scottish Moravian. He was also a newspaper editor who got thrown in jail twice for criticizing the government's policies that hurt the poor. Not a lot of Christian singer songwriters I know that have been thrown in jail for criticizing government policies that hurt the poor, but he was. And um, he also did versions of all the Psalms, and they're excellent. You know some of them. You know, for instance, um, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, Praise my soul the king of heaven, right? That's a version of Psalm 103. But he did another version of Psalm 103 that we recorded on a Double Grace record and one of my favorites is his hymn Hail to the Lord's Anointed, Great David's Greater Son. It's one of the only traditional hymns to speak about the need for justice and a cry out for justice on the, in this world. And uh, it's fascinating because so many of the hymn writers, like William Cooper, Charles Wesley, were involved in working for justice in their personal lives and in their ministries, but it doesn't show up in their their hymns. But this one does, but it's because it's a version of Psalm 2. Uh, And it's powerful, and I included that for you. I know we're running out of time, but let me just tell you one more person, and that's Henry Light. Henry Light... Um, sorry, he's the one that r- does Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. I just described that to, to James Montgomery. Sorry about that. Um, he also does a version. You know his hymn, Abide With Me. It's the most popular hymn in England. It's the hymn they sang at Princess Di's funeral, right? It's like their national hymn, the way Amazing Grace is for America. But he also did a whole version of the Psalms, and, um, and they're, they're wonderful. They're, they're powerful. Now, if you're interested in reading some of these um, and Steele, James Montgomery, Henry Light. I have a friend, an elder down at a church in Birmingham who's um, basically put together a version of all of their hymns and psalms that you can get from Amazon. The way to find it is just look for my name on Amazon, TWIT, because he had me write a preface to each of those three books. And um, I I brought one, which is The Hymns of Anne Steele, uh, and it also includes all of her other poems some prose writings, and all of her psalm versions. And I think this is great. A.W. Tozer said one time, next to the Bible, the best devotional book is a good hymnal. And uh, I agree with that sentiment and um, commend this to you. I think that's all we got time for. Um, Hey, at least we got through it. Sorry I didn't have time for questions, um, but I I hope that was helpful and interesting to y'all, and maybe we'll see you back here next week, right? Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your, for your goodness. We thank you for the many uh, men and women who've went before us, upon whose shoulders we stand, uh, even as we seek to sing praise to your name using the words that you have given us. And, uh, and thank you for the psalms. Thank you for the men and women who've uh, helped us to be able to sing them in our own tongue to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We next? We can... Oh, that's a good question. I don't know and the, the host of the class. Yeah. Said yes. He said yes. Okay, there we go. So will that be. Oh, I don't know if Paul's going to be back would be my guess. But did you sign the email list? That's a good way. You'll get an email I suspect about what they're doing. Thank you. You're so welcome. Yep, good to see you guys. Yep.